to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. It's a new year and all around us, advertisers are telling us that now is the time to change. New year, new you. In only three short months, you could have the body you've always dreamed of. Try Whole Hue or XFit or the Meloton Bach or the Pelotonin Pill. Eat like a caveman, take this shot or eat only things colored orange. The body and more importantly, the life you've always wanted, happiness and joy and ultimate fulfillment are available to you for only three small payments of $99.95. It's almost like they make money on our discontent. All that to say, I've been thinking a little bit about my weight. Maybe it's the whole New Year's resolutions thing, or a chance to get back to the way of health, or the incessant Noom ads I seem to see on my social media feed and streaming commercials. I don't really know what Noom is, but it's supposed to be a health, weight loss, fitness app that leverages psychology to help you reach your goals. How closely am I being monitored that they know that I'm thinking about these things? Or is it just good market research and targeted ads for the beginning of the year? Either way, my weight has been on my mind. Now, a year ago, I was at the lowest weight I've been in my post 30 years. I was avoiding the foods that I'm allergic to. I was feeling energetic and healthier than I'd been in years. Then 2021 happened. Now, the first year of the pandemic wasn't all that rough on me, really. I didn't put on the pandemic 20. It was the second one that got me. I think things took a downturn in June when I contracted COVID after a family funeral. Our family was fully vaccinated. I was the only one of my immediate family to get it, which was a blessing. It wasn't serious medically, but losing my sense of smell was totally bizarre. I'd never experienced how much your sense of smell impacts how food tastes. I also realized how little I smell normally, though I admit not having my smell made not smelling my own stress sweat pretty great. Now, whenever we get sick or we travel, and I did both in this case, it can throw off our routines. My habits got knocked for a loop, and it was the start of a downhill trend, which was only worsened after we miscarried a baby in July. Facing that grief made me realize that perhaps I didn't always treat food as merely fuel for my body, or even a good gift of God's to be enjoyed, but a comfort in hard times. I quit caring as much about what I ate or if I worked out because I was grieving and just trying to stay on top of the tasks of life. And the burgers and fries, the pizza, the Cheetos and chips, they flowed into my body seemingly magically. And somehow I gained weight. I didn't reach my highest weight ever, but I was within shouting distance of it. And this isn't ultimately all that new for me, though I never imagined it would be a struggle. In spite of my genetics and the family patterns that we have around food, I blissfully assumed that the healthy, athletic, American ideal body was just what I would always have with little to no effort. I remember talking to one of my good friends in Spanish class my junior year of high school and telling her with very little self-awareness or compassion that I would never be fat. I would never let myself go in that way. I couldn't imagine not being this version of myself, the young, 
high school athlete. High school Ryan was pretty naive and blissfully unaware, not only of the struggles future Ryan would have in this area, but the struggles that many wonderful people made in the image of God face every day. It is so easy in a culture that celebrates not integrity or character or compassion, but fitness, attractiveness, and thinness to begin to believe the messages that if we aren't perfect plastic people, that we have no value. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly have some insecurities about my body. Some things that I sometimes try to hide on my less than confident days. In fact, I think right now is a great time for some public confession. For you, and maybe you want to join me. So grab a piece of paper, and we're going to consider the things that maybe we aren't all that proud of about our bodies, our sources of insecurity and shame. I'll do it publicly. You can just write on the paper. I have toenail fungus. My right big toes toenail is straight out of a horror film. I've pursued medical treatment for it many times, and the fungus on my other toenails has been eradicated. But even having the toenail removed didn't fix my big right toe. Side note, uh, having a toenail removed is excruciating. The torturers in books and films, they know what they're doing. Even if it could fix my fungal toe, I don't think I would do it again. Mainly because it hurts like crazy, and I don't think it would work. But if it did work, would I go through the same temporary pain to remove the shame? I might. On my other foot, I have two toes that are half-webbed and not entirely separate from each other. Seems like this should help me in swimming. No such luck yet. I have body hair. Not an overwhelming amount, but plenty, which for me and my limited skincare routine leads to ingrown hairs. They look like little pimples, but there's a hair trapped in there. And I admit that I'm a bit obsessive about releasing those little trapped guys. Every time I do it, I think freedom in my best William Wallace approximation. I've been told that when I grow up my facial hair, it ages me 10 years. Instead of merely looking older than my wife, I end up looking like I could be her father. That's not awesome. I've worn glasses or contacts since middle school and glasses fittings are always a little rough because at least half of the time I'll look in that mirror and say, oh, they're a little crooked. And then the tech will try to help. And I'll put them on again and say, oh, they're still a little crooked. And I'll try to help again. And then invariably they'll say, your ears are crooked. And I think, I don't care if my ears are crooked. How about we find a way to fix a thing that can be fixed and figure out how to make the glasses look straight, regardless of whether my ears are at slightly different heights on my head. I'm really not sure that insulting the customer's ears is the way to go, glasses fitting tech. I have terrible allergies to dust and dust mites, which are everywhere, as well as grasses, weeds, and animals. I took allergy shots for years and take not just an allergy pill, but two different nasal sprays every day. And even with this, I may walk into your house and start sneezing without within a half an hour, depending on the level of dust and pet dander present. I have a lot of scars, physical scars, on my left arm right here, 
I have a scar from when I tripped and fell between first and second base, turning a sure triple into a stumbling double in high school baseball. I have scars on my left knee from surgery and from ripping it open playing football in high school, from tripping in the parking lot, very glamorous during a football game, and in college catching it near an uncapped permanent volleyball installation. I have a scar from my hernia surgery in college. I have a scar from when I broke a drill bit trying to hang window blinds and drilled into my finger instead. I could go on, not just about scars, but about my body insecurities. And I bet that you could too. But scars mark our lives and tell the stories of who we are and our history. And it's the scars that we carry inside that can haunt us. And many of us carry scars and shame regarding our bodies. Now, my struggles are mostly fighting the messaging in our culture about what makes a person worthwhile and attractive physically and trying to eat in a way that enjoys the good gifts of food without using it to comfort my pain. Others struggle in deeper ways. While our bodies are good and beautiful in many ways, they aren't perfect and the imperfections can eat at us. It's not just expectations or image or a number on a scale or the looks or words of others. For some people, it's living with pain. It's lack of function or limbs. It's disability or the reality of aging bodies. So how do we square this with the psalmist's words that we are fearfully and wonderfully made? What does the Bible say about our source of shame and how can God help us to love ourselves, our bodies, just as they are, even as we join his work in forming and growing us? How can we begin to internalize the truths of who we are, who we truly are, so that who we see in the mirror or feel in our limbs doesn't have to have the final word on our worth? That's where we're headed together today. So let's try to dive in with grace and compassion for each other, for our bodies, and with God's abundant love covering us all. Let's start first with the story that we're being told by culture and the world around us, and then compare that to the story that the Bible is telling us about our bodies. We are subtly and not so subtly told that how our body looks and performs determines our worth. People are celebrated for their beauty and strength, for their sexiness, for their fashion choices. We celebrate weight loss success publicly and privately and are told image is everything. And for most of us, we don't measure up. And no matter how hard we try, we won't ever be enough. Now, a lot of this is driven by advertising in the $500 billion beauty industry. Is $500 billion a lot? Yes, it's more than whole economies of many industrialized countries. We are inundated by messaging because it drives the bottom line of companies, not because they are after our flourishing. Jennifer Taylor Wagner tells us in her just published book, Love Your Body, Companies have mastered the messaging that catches our attention and reveals a need we didn't even know we had. Just think of the magnificent magazine promises that taunt us as we check out in the grocery store. Be a size two by summer. 141 ways to tone up those problem areas. Eat better, stress less, and drop 10 pounds with this simple trick. 
Tear your fat, ugly face off and put it in the trash because you'll never be anything unless you drop 25 pounds. Now that last one isn't real, but it's emotionally true. And Wagner knows what she's talking about. She's lived much of her life with an unhealthy relationship with her weight and her body. And it wasn't just the 100s of pounds she had to drop. She had to drop a lot of other weights that were keeping her imprisoned on the way. Because we are subconsciously conditioned to believe that we will never be enough. That we'll always need something else or need to change something else to reach the ideal. Except the ideal doesn't exist, not really. And we're all hurting here. Recent statistics show that most Americans report feeling unhappy with their bodies. A full 79% of us, including men, Alarmingly, this number grows to 91% when you look at women alone. What's more, just 5% of the female population naturally possesses a body that looks like the perfect body commonly portrayed in the media. That means that if you throw 100 women in a room, 91 would have their heads between their knees because of the way that five or fewer in the room looked. So many of us are made to feel left out because our bodies fail to conform to a standard we think that everyone is supposed to meet. Very few people even approach the ideal that we see paraded, and even those who do have their own insecurities. Not only do they have insecurities, but the images we see are often heavily edited moments in time. And some of the people in the pictures are pursuing unhealthy methods to maintain the look, while others don't even exist. And while I have my own struggles with my body, I don't have to carry the weight of cultural standards of beauty in the same way that women do. And this is where I find Wagner's words so compelling and moving. For many women, obsession with weight and bodily perfection starts early. By just age nine, somewhere between 50 and 80% of girls identify a desire to lose weight. And get this, nearly 40% of fourth grade girls diet. The number grows in middle school, again in high school, and again in college, when body-related concerns take an especially dark turn. Full-blown eating disorders, that is, eating disorders that go on to define lengthy periods of a person's life, often develop in the college years. More than 30 million people in the United States suffer from an eating disorder, and eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. Every 62 minutes, at least one person dies as a direct result from an eating disorder. Let that just sink in for a minute. The highest mortality rate of any mental illness. Every 62 minutes, at least one person dies as a direct result from an eating disorder. This is what the cultural message is producing. This incredible unhealth is literally killing people. It does not lead to flourishing. So let's look at a different story, a different message, the voice of God, and see if we can't start to internalize that different message. As we've seen in our whole series, Altered Carbon, at the beginning, God creates people and calls them very good. Their bodies, their image-bearing capability are all very good. Not only that, but when we look closer at the creation account in Genesis 2, we discover something incredible. Not just that our bodies are good, but that they are sacred. This is Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. Now, interestingly, in most translations, you'll find a footnote after rib or ribs, which is why I intentionally left the footnote mark in the verse that you're seeing right now. That's because the word doesn't really mean rib. Here's the footnote from the New Living Translation, or took a part of the man's side. Okay, so side, we're getting closer, but that doesn't fully explain what's happening here. Dr. Preston Sprinkle helps us understand the translation better. The word rib translates the Hebrew word tsela. Despite the familiarity of this translation, tsela probably doesn't actually mean rib here, since tsela occurs more than 40 other times in the Old Testament, and it never means rib. In almost every other usage, tsela refers to the side of a sacred place of architecture like the tabernacle or the temple. And this meaning informs its usage in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve's bodies are compared to sacred pieces of architecture. Temples embody God's presence. And so do our bodies. All of us, all of our bodies are holy, no matter what size or shape or functionality. We are created to be the bearers of the divine image. We are supposed to be little pictures of God, with Jesus as the exact representation, the image of the invisible God, like I talked about last week. While we aren't perfect like our Heavenly Father or Jesus Christ, we don't have to be because Jesus has taken our sin and shame and separated it as far as the East is from the West. So where did the shame come from in the first place? From our own brokenness and sin. In our initially created state, we read in Genesis 2 that the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now, can, can you imagine that, being naked and having no shame at all? This is how we're made to be. It's one of the reasons that the wedding night can be incredibly anxiety-inducing. How will my spouse react when they see me, when they see every inch of me in all my beauty and glory and imperfection and shame? Will they respond with joy and love or with disgust? No matter what your body looks like or how it operates, we are to respond to each other with grace and joy. In spite of all of my insecurities, many of which I shared with you earlier, Megan, my wife, has never once made me feel insecure about my body and I never want to make her feel insecure about hers. We hear enough messages about how we aren't good enough in our culture. A marriage is supposed to be a place of acceptance, safety, support, and cherishing. As much as is humanly possible, this bond is the only commitment that can hold the beauty and intimacy and love needed to sustain a naked and unashamed relationship. Our marriages don't all mirror that standard, but it's something we can strive for, to celebrate each other in the goodness of our bodies and ourselves because they aren't separate. We should be pursuing this sort of naked and unashamed state because it's what we were made for and it's where we're headed as well. Until then, we do our best to live into this truth in our lives. Now, the state of naked and unashamed was lost when Adam and Eve chose to enthrone themselves at the center of their lives instead of God. 
the same decision that you and I make more frequently than we care to admit. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. In that moment, in spite of the fact that there was no one to compare themselves to except each other, shame and nakedness burst on the scene and we have been covering and hiding ever since then. But before Adam and Eve left the garden, God himself clothes their skin. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. He creates clothes for them that are far better than leaves. Even in our imperfect state, God cares for our bodies and we bear the divine image. Tish Harrison Warren in Liturgy of the Ordinary warns us this, when we use our bodies to rebel against God or to worship the false gods of sex, youth, or personal autonomy, we are not simply breaking an archaic and arbitrary commandment. We are using a sacred object, in fact, the most sacred object on earth in a way that denigrates its beautiful and high purpose. Similarly, when we denigrate our bodies, whether through neglect or staring at our faces and counting up our flaws, we are belittling a sacred site, a worship space more wondrous than the most glorious ancient cathedral. We are standing before the Grand Canyon or the Sistine Chapel and rolling our eyes. Our bodies, bearers of the divine image of our three-in-one God, are the most sacred objects on earth. Nothing man-made compares to what God created in us. But we don't treat our bodies that way. We worship them instead of worshiping the creator, or we pick them apart in a pursuit of some unattainable standard of perfection. We weep and we roll our eyes at God's greatest creation, us. That is the message of the Bible. It's time for us to lose some things, not wait, but all the things that are keeping us from seeing ourselves as the pinnacle of God's creation, as God's masterpiece, as Paul's letter to the Ephesians calls us. To do this, we need to let some things go so the truth can start to move from our heads to our hearts. First of all, we have to let go of our pursuit of perfection. Now, there are many wonderful things about self-improvement. In fact, God wants us to grow and to develop and become all that he made us to be. God wants to produce more and more of the life of Jesus in us through the Holy Spirit. And we are promised that God will complete the work that he started in us. But growth and perfection are different. And often our pursuit of self-improvement and growth isn't a pursuit of Jesus or resting in God's love, but rather a pursuit of perfection and the acclaim that comes when we get closer to it in our eyes and especially in the eyes of others. Wagner warns us, we are subconsciously conditioned to believe that who we are at our core is never actually enough. We're told that with some small change, act, or purchase, we can get one step closer to perfection, a perfection that is temporal, fleeting, and spoiler alert, can never actually be attained. But the problem here is that the image we're striving for isn't presented as perfection, it's presented as normal. And it is dangerous territory when we come to understand perfect as normal because perfection isn't normal. Normal is the experience of most people and none of us ever attain perfection. 
But you know who did attain perfection? Jesus did. If anyone had a perfect body, it had to be Jesus, right? Jesus, he's swole, except we're told in Isaiah this, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in a dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. This prophecy of the Messiah is incredibly comforting to me. Jesus was known for many things, but his body, conforming to our idealistic standards, didn't make the list. It's as if our pursuit of a perfect body is nowhere near God's priority list. Our bodies already bear the divine image. They are already temples of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us and our bodies are good and beautiful just as they are in all their diversity, dimension, and design. And even as I say that, I recognize that for some of us, the struggle isn't for perfection, but rather simply for function or for less pain. And I think the Bible gives us some hope here too. First, I want to encourage you that you're not alone. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief, as Isaiah tells us. He was brutally tortured and killed. He was so distressed before his death that he swept blood. You are not alone in your pain or grief. God grieves with you and longs to comfort you and assure you that pain does not have the final word in your life. Second, scripture is clear that all that is broken and wrong, sick and bent, will be made new in Christ Jesus that our resurrected bodies will no longer experience this pain or dysfunction. Revelation 21.4 reminds us, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Our good and beautiful bodies will be fully restored to how they're meant to be. The flaws are fleeting. Warren encourages us, in the scriptures, we find that the body is not incidental to our faith, but integral to our worship. We were made to be embodied, to experience life, pleasure, and limits in our bodies. When Jesus redeems us, that redemption occurs in our bodies. And when we die, we will not float away to heaven and leave our bodies behind, but will experience the resurrection of our bodies. Christ himself appeared after his resurrection in a mysteriously changed, but fleshy eating and drinking body. Even now, he remains in his body. Our bodies won't be destroyed, but redeemed gloriously, just like Jesus' body was. So while we groan along with all creation for our final redemption and restoration, let's remember that God can make beautiful things out of our brokenness. In John 1, Jesus and his disciples encounter a man that was born blind. Here's what happens. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it simply because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Now at the time in their culture, it was assumed that this man's lack of sight was a direct result of the sin of his parents or maybe even of himself. Maybe they missed that born blind part. Um, Jesus, though, corrects the deeply misguided assumption and restores the man's sight. And while God may never heal you the way Jesus healed this man until we reach glory, 
I encourage you to claim these words of Jesus as your own. This happened so the power of God could be seen in me. God reveals his glory over and over again in people that culture despised and overlooked. God delights to use our weaknesses to display his strength and the truth that you are holy and fully loved right now, just as you are. Why were you born the way that you were? I, I don't know, not really, but I'm confident that God's power can be seen through you if you allow it to be revealed in your character, in your perseverance, in the fruit of the spirit you display in spite of the pain and lack of function or limb you may experience. This happened so the power of God could be seen in me. That all being said, some of us need professional help with our body issues and co-occurring mental health challenges. I encourage you to be honest with someone you trust about what you experience and struggle with and seek the help not only of good friends and prayers and internalizing the truth of God's view of you, but also medical and mental health professionals. You are not alone and you can live a healthy and flourishing life. Perhaps today is the day that you start that journey. For all of us, instead of perfection, let's work to internalize the truth that we are loved beyond our ability to understand that when we were made, God was singing over us and we represent him to the world. Let's memorize this section of Psalm 139 together. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Memorize and internalize these words of God. Remind yourself that God is with you, that you are the beloved of God's heart and that God thinks of you innumerable times and ultimately that your body bears the divine image of your maker. Secondly, we need to let go of our constant comparison. We're told not to judge a book by its cover, but we do it again and again. We're wired for it in many ways. We like to know where we stand, and instead of resting in God's incredible, unending love for us, we measure ourselves against others to determine our worth. There is a heartbreaking story about the danger of comparison in the Bible regarding two sisters named Leah and Rachel. They both ended up married to Jewish patriarch Jacob, and their rivalry was incredibly destructive. Here's the part that just kills me. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. What a challenge to be compared to a sister like that. But we know the truth that God loved them both infinitely, even if Jacob couldn't. The cover of the book does not determine its contents or its worth. In fact, in some instances, a beautiful exterior can hide internal rot. This is what Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke 11, comparing them to clean cups on the outside with filth inside and to whitewashed tombs full of death and decay. Wagner warns us, comparison robs you of joy. It fills your heart with negativity about yourself and makes you feel inadequate. Comparison also robs you of time. 
hours upon hours spent subconsciously pondering the lived experience of everyone else leaves you empty on time, you could have spent focusing on enjoying the world around you. And comparison robs you of quality of life. Instead of obsessing about that what could be or what you wish your body was like, focus on the here and now. Spend the same energy you invest on anxiety in enjoying where life has you at this moment. Instead of comparison, let's choose celebration. Celebration of ourselves, of our God, of our friends, and of this moment we have to live life. Let's not waste one more minute obsessing and comparing and criticizing others and ourselves. And that leads me to the last thing we need to let go of. Three, let go of our negative self-talk. After Jennifer Taylor Wagner lost hundreds of pounds, she discovered something that was hard but true. Inside, she was still the same. Her habits and thought patterns weren't necessarily changed. She still didn't feel like she was allowed to take up space, that she was worth people's time. She felt like she wasn't enough, even though her body now looked different. She was still herself. And no matter what your body looks like or where you live or what job you have, you will still be you. If we don't address how we address ourselves and the habits that we develop and how we talk about ourselves, we'll continue to face the same challenges internally, even if our external reality has changed. Wagner shares her own struggles with negative self-talk. Negative self-talk particularly was a familiar friend to these desperate times after I'd hit rock bottom. You'll never be anything but a fat girl. You'll never land a man. Who would want you? Who could find you attractive? You're more likely to die of a heart attack than you are to actually make a change. No change has ever stuck before. What makes you think this time will be different? Desperation can drive deep, dark thoughts and recklessness of which can drive deep, dark, toxic behavior. I know that I have to be very careful how I talk to myself when I make mistakes at home because my children are listening to me. When I spill something or trip or break an item or fail in some way, it's easy for me not just to think, but to say, come on, Ryan, be more careful. And then later I hear Aiden say out loud to himself, come on, Aiden. And I hear my negative self-talk playing out in his life. And I know that I need to be kinder to myself. And sometimes it's easier to see it in others and to be kind to others than ourselves. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as yourself, but that's hard when we aren't great at loving ourselves and extending ourselves the grace that God extends to us. For some of us, I encourage you to be kinder to yourself and treat yourself the way you kindly treat others. Our critical spirit towards ourselves leaks out to others. It's not just ourselves we're hurting. It's others as we internally hold them to the same impossible standards that we are failing to meet. Instead, let's extend the grace of God that's already been extended to us. And let's extend that to others and to ourselves. If the creator of the universe thinks I'm lovely and able to bear the divine image and worth Jesus' sacrifice, who am I to say different about myself or about others? In the same chapter of Luke, when Jesus talks about the Pharisees, he also encourages us 
of what health could result in when our eyes are fixed on God. Your eyes are like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light and no, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to live radiantly. I want my eyes fixed on Jesus and his incredible love for me. I am loved, flesh and blood, body and soul, flaws and all. His compassion never runs out. So let's ask God to increase our compassion, grace, and love for others and for ourselves. I started today sharing a lot of things that I don't love about my body, that I'm insecure about it, and I encourage you to join me to take the piece of paper and write your own insecurities as I shared mine. But let's end with a different practice. First, if you happen to join me in writing down your insecurities on paper, let's just rip that paper apart right now. Those areas of shame are not us. They don't get to determine our worth. Only God can do that. Instead, let's take a new piece of paper and write down what we love about our bodies even what growth our scars have given us. I'll start. I like my hair. Even with the beginnings of gray and white, black hair with fair skin is a little unique. I like my eyes. Somewhere between light brown and green, there are flecks of color in there that are pretty cool. They also see pretty well, and that's a gift. I like the wrinkles around my eyes. I think they reveal a life lived with many smiles and much laughter. I like that my arms are strong enough to lift all of my children and even my wife, that my legs carry me through my day and even allow me to run and enjoy physical activity. I like my smile. It may be a little crooked, but I like it. I like to think there's a little roguishness in it. And even if I end up straightening my teeth someday for medical reasons, my lips will still bear a scar from basketball in high school that will keep that smile crooked even if my teeth are straight. I like that my scars have stories of fun times playing sports, of caring for my home and for my body. I like that I'm alive, that I'm living and breathing, that I can eat food and swallow without difficulty, that I can sleep and be restored, that I can live life with my wife and children and share life with all of you. I am so thankful for my body. It's good for our souls to practice gratitude, to rewire our brains, to choose gratitude instead of complaint and criticism. So let's begin to choose to cherish our bodies, ourselves and each other because God cherishes us. You are greatly loved. In some Christian traditions, ministers and priests pray and bless new homes that people under their care move into or have built. It is particularly interesting in this process when they arrive at the bathroom. One Anglican priest named Peter prays a very specific blessing when he arrives there. He anoints the bathroom mirror with oil and he prays that when people look into it, they would see themselves as beloved images of God. 
He prays that they would not relate to their bodies with the categories the world gives them, but instead according to the truth of who they are in Christ. Peter told me that when he prays over the bathroom mirror, he has noticed fathers of young girls begin to cry. They long for their daughters to see themselves as God sees them and for their reflections in their bathroom mirror to be a reflection of their belovedness and freedom in Christ. It's so easy to look in the mirror and see the imperfections, the wrinkles, and see all that we aren't physical. Instead, what if we saw ourselves through the eyes of Jesus? What if we saw instead daughter and son of the king? What if we saw beloved? What if we saw ourselves as clothed with the righteousness of Christ? What if we considered that our future resurrected and glorified bodies will be everlasting splendors in the words of C.S. Lewis? I encourage you to even write on your mirror, beloved, to remind yourself that that is who you are, beloved by God. I will pray that you will see yourself that way. And I encourage you to pray along with me. Let's learn the habit of beholding our bodies as a gift and learn to delight in the body God has made for us, that God loves and that God will one day redeem and make whole. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit that we carry so many scars, so much insecurity, so much uh, so much desire to be something else, to be more, but we feel this, this reality that we can't meet these standards, Lord. And the culture bombards us with a need for, for something else for something new, for something different, for us to be something that's not only not normal, isn't even attainable. We want to view ourselves in a different way. We want to see ourselves the way you see us so that when we look in the mirror, we recognize that we are your beloved, that your love for us is beyond our ability to understand. Help us to root our identity, to begin to love our good bodies because you created us. We bear your image. We are loved deeply. Thank you for your love for us that teaches us to love others, to love ourselves. May we internalize that love and then give that love away. It's in Jesus' incredible name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.